I was afraid that seminary would brainwash me with Christian doctrine. Not that I knew what doctrine was, but it sounded big, mean, and oppressive. I didn't really know what seminary was either. Turns out seminary is graduate school for learning about scripture and theology and usually to prepare people to become ordained ministers. So when my mom suggested I go study in seminary, I responded, no, thank you. What was going on? It was bewildering how Christian my life was starting to look. In 2019, I was still working at Catch the Fire Church. I'd been there for a year and started to get a handle on who this God character is. I think God is good, but I wasn't 100% sure on the whole Christianity and church thing. Despite my initial aversion to seminary, I couldn't shake the feeling that I was supposed to go and study God. After all, a big catalyst for my journey out of Christianity was the fact that I didn't get to go to a Christian college after high school. That journey had taken me to 35 countries by the time I was 26 and had returned to Toronto. Still, I felt mysteriously drawn towards spirituality, other religions, and wisdom teachings. I gravitated towards books that were about the mystical, the cosmic, and divine. So what was I looking for then that I still needed to find? Tyndale University presents Heavenly Minded, Earthly Good. Deconstruction is the word commonly used for the process of critically dissecting your Christian beliefs. For some in the church, deconstruction is kind of the new bad word, a backsliding or apostasy or heresy. Churches tend to assume that deconstruction is an intellectual issue, but it's intertwined with all these other layers of what makes us human. What makes up a person is things like their cognitive layers, right? Their emotional layers, their behavioral layers, and their relational layers. This podcast follows my personal journey through deconstruction. Along the way, we're going to chat with professors, pastors, psychologists, researchers, historians, and artists but I was still really struggling with the fact that if I was wrong, I might be going to hell. We'll explore the questions so many of us have about Christianity. The stuff you probably didn't feel comfortable bringing up on Sunday at youth group or small group. I'm your host and guide for this journey, Anita Wing Lee. When I left high school, I happily left behind the church that my parents worked in and the one that I'd grown up in. I was 18 years old and finally free. I had always wanted to work in media, so I was enrolled in a media studies program. I ate up my courses that taught us how capitalism was ruining the world and how the male gaze objectified women. In the summer after my first year, I landed an internship at a marketing agency. It was a really good internship. I was the only first-year student out of nine interns, and I thought I was set for life. But as a part of this internship, I had two weeks where I was stationed at a hardware store to be a promotional representative for a vacuum cleaner. I had a little piece of carpet in front of me and a big sign behind me. My job was to throw dirt on this piece of carpet and vacuum it back up. I threw dirt and vacuumed it back up and threw dirt again and vacuumed it back up. I did this for eight hours a day. 
This is not the life I want. By the end of that summer, I had made a chunk of change from working full-time, but I went back to university empty inside and determined to find a better way. If this was the best life had to offer me, stuck inside a freezing air-conditioned office during the glorious midsummer days, creating campaigns to sell stuff that people don't need, I don't want any of this. So like any reasonable 20-something, I went traveling. I spent the following three summers of my undergraduate education finding every way possible to not be in Canada. I taught English in Italy, worked in Russia, Ukraine, and Tanzania, and backpacked across East Africa. By my last semester, I was certain I didn't want to work in an office. Then I discovered the wonderful world of online marketing. Bloggers, online coaches, and marketing gurus talked about the location-independent lifestyle. Work from your laptop, publish content, reach people everywhere, and make a living. It seemed like the perfect combo of everything I wanted. At 23 years old, I threw myself headfirst and heartfirst into building an online business. I designed a website, created a brand, and Anita Lee became Anita Wing Lee. Hey guys, it's Anita Wing Lee. Hey guys, it's Anita. And Hi guys, it's Anita Wing Lee. I didn't know what I was doing, but I followed what the online marketing gurus told me to do. And while I had a few small successes, I also found myself waking up in panic and anxiety after a couple months. The anxiety got so bad that I couldn't even look at a spreadsheet without freaking out. I'm doing what I love. I'm supposed to be happy. I started looking for answers in spirituality. Desperate to feel better, I started meditating, which led to reading about Buddhism and the Law of Attraction. I discovered all the books in the section of the bookstore that are beside the religion books. Sometimes they're called New Age books, but to me it was just spirituality. It was a connection to the divine, to something bigger than myself, and it gave me hope. These were books that advocated peace, freedom, and empowerment. I believed in a connection to something transcendent. And it didn't have rules like the Christian God. I found a word for myself. I'm spiritual but not religious. It seemed so much better to be spiritual but not religious. In Canada today, the fastest growing religious demographic is non-religious or no religious affiliation. Generally speaking, you can't bring up spirituality or religion in the boardroom, the government, or a conference call. The baseline is to keep your religion, if you have one, private. To better understand this phenomenon, I spoke with Dr. Sarah Wilkins Laflemme, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Waterloo. She is co-author of the book, None of the Above, Non-Religious Identity in the US and Canada. Her book looks at the fascinating differences between the religious and non-religious. As someone who considers herself neither spiritual nor religious, I wanted to get her take on what it means to be religious or not in Canada. We look at some of those differences, right? So there's, you know, the, the non-religious 
on average, have a much more liberal and progressive value orientation in terms of uh, political, socio-political issues. So they're much more pro-environment, pro-immigration, pro-LGBTQ2S plus communities, pro-feminists, um, pro-equality. They're, they're, they're very, they're their values are much more at the left end of the political spectrum. And they use those values to define themselves, especially like when you talk to them, they often bring up those values as key to their own identities. And, and it is a way to kind of mark a boundary between them and say more actively religious people who they tend to see as more conservative and on average, uh, actively religious individuals in country are more conservative. Doesn't mean they all are, but just on average, it's a trend we see. And it's definitely how the non-religious see those who are more involved in faith groups. Oh, this explains why I resisted calling myself a Christian. I didn't want to be associated with those conservative religious types. My personal values are more liberal and progressive, and so spirituality was attractive to me. Here's how Dr. Wilkins Laflamme explains spirituality, or what she calls self-spiritualities, the act of creating your own spiritual practice and faith. There are elements common to spiritual endeavors, even a broad shared doctrine among some of these spiritualities, right? This would include any kind of search for one's authentic self, valuing personal authenticity above conformity to external religious norms and authorities, and relocating the sacred from the external and the transcendent to the internal and the imminent. The terms of religion and, and religious uh, seem to have a more negative connotation for many today, right? Compared with the word spiritual and spirituality. Religion is often associated with the negative historical and contemporary baggage of institutional and oppressive doctrine, authority, and abuse of power. Not for everyone, but often when you when you ask people, that's tends can be a default that they start thinking of when you use the word religion. In comparison to religion, spirituality has some qualities that fit with our day and age and make it so attractive. Where spirituality seems to be more associated with personal freedom, exploration, self-reliance, choice, self-development, and authenticity, these being highly prized values in our current Western cultures um, that experience what Charles Taylor calls a massive subjective turn since the 1960s. In other ways, who are like advanced in that process of individualism, where we're kind of you know in that goes hand in hand with our consumer societies. There's these values of kind of that really are focused on the individual that are really put on a pedestal in many of our Western societies, including in Canada today. Such forms of spirituality would seem at first glance to be especially well-suited for today's Western societies, which value this personal authenticity, self-development, independence, freedom, and self-reliance. Why are they so popular today? Well, because they, they seem to do well in our societies and they kind of, again, it's the chicken and the egg, right? Is it are we linking the values that we like to spirituality and, and because of that, we like spirituality or spirituality contains the values that we like. And so we like spirituality. <laughs> it's a kind of, it's a, it's a weird situation, but it is, does seem to be why self-spiritualities are so popular. And, and this is also made possible in a context of growing pluralism, right? Where a you do you mentality, right? Which is like, you know, quintessential to the millennial generation uh, prevails, right? Like it's okay. You do you, you do your own thing. And because of that, you know, spiritualities of various sorts can, can flourish in certain ways. Now I can see several factors played into my own rejection of religion. First, there's the trauma and grief that we talked about in episode two. Secondly, it's also just not cool to be religious. Western culture favors the rational, and religion with its sometimes ancient mythical stories doesn't get a whole lot of credit. 
Thirdly, spirituality and this amorphous way of developing ourselves fits in with the Western individualist culture of improving ourselves. And number four, travel. Once I left the Western bubble and I realized that the way we do things in the West is just one way and it's not even necessarily the better way, I had a whole new set of options. I could live in another country, I could choose a completely different kind of lifestyle, and I didn't need to do things the way the West did. From the time I was 20 until I was 26, I bounced between countries every couple of weeks or months. I would stay with friends I met on my travels or met online. Along the way, I discovered a kind of hospitality and generosity that I had never experienced at home in Toronto. It was like the people I met traveling were angels to me. Interestingly, God was also starting to find his way into my life through the books I was reading. I would pick up books about spirituality with titles like Wishes Fulfilled, The Power of Intention, and May Cause Miracles. And halfway through the book, it would start being about God. Non-Christian authors were writing about how God had a plan for my life and that God was good. This happened so often that I got to a point where whenever I saw the word God in a non-Christian book, I'd think, really, you again? But it was through these spirituality books that I became comfortable with the idea of God after totally ignoring him from the time I had left high school. During these years, I was very spiritual. I trusted that the universe had my back, I sought enlightenment through meditation and healing in yoga. I believed in a higher power. I liked the idea of knowing that an all-powerful entity lives in me, loves me, wants to bless me, and wants me to live a full, amazing life. My desire for an anti-capitalistic, greener, simpler, and more generous way of life was wrapped into a spiritual path that was an amalgamation of the kind of world I wanted to help create. Just like Dr. Wilkinson Laflemme describes, my spiritual beliefs were mixed into my values for what I wanted in society. Jumping to 2019 when I was 28, a year into working at Catch the Fire Church in Toronto, I didn't just forget everything that had happened to me. I didn't forget that I had traveled the world and met amazing people who weren't Christian. I didn't forget all of the spirituality books that I had read. I just put it all on hold. I was in a totally different environment now. It was odd to me that all these people went to church. I mean, they can't all be brainwashed, can they? Am I being brainwashed? Turning a blind eye to the issues of the world and falling into an easier life where we just sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty all the time. So now I was spiritual and religious. Some of my beliefs were similar to religious people and others were similar to spiritual people. How does this work? Even though I was surrounded by people who worked at the church and went to church, I couldn't shake my questions around, what about all the harm Christianity has done? What about the Crusades when Christians across Europe went and killed people in the name of Jesus? And what about the role that the church has played in the residential school system in Canada? Why am I even working for a church? Do I want to be part of a church? 
what's the point of church? Thankfully, I found someone who's been asking similar questions. Kevin Makins is the founding pastor of Eucharist Church in Hamilton, Ontario, and he's the author of a book called Why Would Anyone Go to Church? He says there are a lot of things stacked against the church. I mean, one thing I've realized is that the church cannot hang with the options of the world. Like if you are looking for entertaining uh, lectures or teachings, you can go find TED Talks, you can find stand-up comics, you know, who will say things they can't say from the pulpit. You'll find people asking all sorts of compelling questions in very uh, polished and beautiful ways all over the place. If you go to most congregations, you'll find a pastor who's likely not had as much prep time as they wish they had trying to speak to, you know, 50 people, half of whom are entertaining children or trying not to fall asleep. Like that's just the kind of state of most of our congregations, including Eucharist. It's, you know, we, we are in a time where the church doesn't compete anymore when it comes to music. There are better concerts out there. There are better uh, ways to learn out there. In so many ways, the church has been outclassed by the rise of podcasts, by the rise of, um, you know, all the alternatives for what you can do with your time. However, the place that the church has not been outclassed is when it comes to encountering the living spirit of God with other human beings who are also as much of a mess as you are and learning and witnessing what emerges from a group of people earnestly trying to follow that living God together with all their weaknesses stated up front. Nobody's doing that. Like no one is, you know, dropping off uh, ads in my mailbox saying, you know, come to this mediocre community where we're all trying to figure it out. And by the grace of God, we've learned three things. That's just not marketable. And so, uh, you know, I think what we are learning is that if the church, if the church is going to try to keep up with the pace and acceleration of the world, it will fail. Hmm. There's something there. The place that the church has not been outclassed is when it comes to encountering the living spirit of God. As someone who's lived in spiritual and intentional communities, I can say honestly that there is something different about being in a church. It's like there's always this invisible extra person involved in everything we do. This spiritual presence is changing us and it's also changing circumstances. So while the church may suck at some other things, there's nothing else quite like it in the world that is supposed to be helping people encounter God. But before I get too deep into church, before I decide if I'm going to be spiritual or religious or both or neither, I need an answer to my million dollar question. The question underneath all questions. What is Christianity? This seemed like a question I could bring to Kevin. You know, I think that Christianity is a, a way of life that is shaped by Christ and by the way that he taught us to live, which is, you know, the way of Christ is, you know, it, it's engagement with the living God, the God who's be, the God of gods, you know, the, the unknowable God. It is, it is a trusting relationship with that unknowable God as, as father or as, as a creator, as source. The way of Christ is... Uh, 
a, a life of prayer and service, you know, and, and a spiritual pattern of living, a way that reforms our psyches, our souls, um, reshapes our desires so that we want what God wants for us. And we, we enter faithfully in that path. And, you know, the way of Christ is <laughs> the way of Christ is a constant descent into grace and receiving of grace. But my sense is that it's probably best just to start with Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again. Kevin also talked about how Christianity is not just head knowledge. It's also a process. I think that Christianity as the way, as the way of Christ and the way of the living God, Christianity must be experienced. It cannot be only discussed. It cannot be uh, understood at the level of knowledge. Um, there's a knowing and a believing side to Christianity, and there's an encountering and a becoming side to Christianity. And until you have started to become Christian, you will only know the theory. And the theory is great, but the theory is not the becoming. And the becoming is what builds the faith, and the becoming is what transforms us, and the becoming is what will ultimately, I think, pull all of us deeper and deeper into the way of Christ. That's it. That's what I noticed was happening to me. I was becoming something different as I worked at this church. I was changing. Now, I wasn't sure if this was a better version of me. I felt like I lost some of my edge, my good edge, like the things that made me unique, but also some of my bad edge, the parts that were fearful or prideful. Either way, I seem to be becoming a more peaceful version of myself. So there might be some benefits to this way of Christ, but another lingering issue that always kept me away from Christianity was all of the harm that it has done. I asked Kevin what he'd say to someone concerned about this. I would say that that person should be encouraged that they can even see it. Because you know, what our, our flesh, what our ego wants to do when we first encounter something that is threatening to our worldview is we want to push it away. So for a lot of people, especially if they would call themselves a Christian, as soon as somebody says, well, you know, here's the history of the church's relationship with indigenous people. Here's, you know, the history of residential schools. Here's the history of conversion therapy. You know, a lot of Christians would immediately respond with a, those aren't, they weren't real Christians. <laughs> you know, I'm a good Christian. Those were bad Christians, you know? So there's, there's kind of an immediate desire to distance ourselves from the ways that things have been broken, the ways that harm has been done. And I think any Christian who is grieved by that harm is someone who is willing to see the truth. And that is what will set them free. You know, that's how God will begin the process of setting someone free from that. But it begins with that grief. So I'd begin by, by saying, it's a good thing that you could see it. I would then encourage them to start to to ask some deeper questions. It's easy to see the harm that Christianity has done at a distance and across history. But then I'd start encouraging that person to reflect on what they actually know to be true from their own experience. So if you spend a lot of time on Instagram, you're very likely to have a negative view of Christianity unless your algorithm is one of the like, yay Jesus algorithms where everybody's having breakfast with Jesus and, and coffee with the Lord in the morning. You know, nothing wrong with that. But there are people that I'm sure their Instagram algorithms are all pro-Christian kind of messages. 
for me and the people that I know, the algorithm is always feeding us just news of, of all the failures of the church, every bad news story from every bad news congregation across you know history and across America. And so I'd encourage somebody who's feeling already the weight and grief of that to take a second to unplug from those sources to begin to do some internal work. Because the truth is that bad news spreads more rapidly than good news. And so when you encounter bad news stories about Christians, there's a good chance that those are being fed to you by an algorithm that wants your attention so it can make money off your eyes. So don't trust it entirely. Kevin's point about how much bad news we take in is something I've been thinking about as well. In science, they call it a negativity bias. As humans, we have a tendency to give more importance to negative experiences or bad news than to positive or neutral experiences. It's why when your boss delivers bad news or bad feedback, it hits us so much harder than when they say something positive. We're also more prone to remember traumatic experiences better than positive ones. And we think more often about negative things or things that could go wrong than positive ones. And so while that's not an excuse for bad things that churches have done, it doesn't necessarily discount the good that churches have also done in the world. Christians have been behind many social movements that have improved society for everyone like the abolitionist movement to end slavery, hospitals, healthcare, civil rights, charities, workers' rights, and women's rights. The people behind many of those movements were motivated by their faith in God. So while it's easy to look at the harm Christianity has done and say, oh, that's bad, I don't want to be a part of that, which is what I did, it's also reasonable to look honestly and humbly at the good. I mean, look at business. There are plenty of businesses that are corrupt and doing things wrong and exploiting people for money. But most of the world works in business in some form or another. We have yet to come up with a better form of a social organization. So you can discard business and try to create a whole new form, or you can try to reform business. And there are plenty of people who do that working in business to try to make it better for everyone. But this does not help in my conundrum around spirituality versus religion. In our world today, it seems like you can be a perfectly good person without God. I asked Dr. Wilkins Laflemme for her take on this. You know, and most of these non-religious individuals, you know, when we ask them and we run surveys and interviews with them, they still seem to be leading pretty happy healthy and, you know, productive, I don't know how you want to define that term. It's an old term, and, but productive lives in society, right? They're working, they're having families, everything's going well for them for the most part. It doesn't mean their lives are perfect, but for the most part, they seem to be doing okay, right? The, the vast majority of non-religious individuals will define themselves as moral people, right, when interviewed. And, you know, they'll say they have a moral code that's often quite similar to what Christians will say in terms of, of their morality, right? So they aim to do good in society, Society, they treat others as they would want to be treated themselves, you know, and so on, right? So now, would I say that, like, say, 
non-Christians or non-religious individuals are better <laughs> than Christians? I think I don't know if that was part of the question. No, obviously I'm I'm not like that's not how I think, and and it's obviously not my place or my job to say that. Um, you know, I I people are people, right? People do what they do. I don't see people as good or bad. I just kind of I'm fascinated by how they live their lives in society, right? It's not my place to say uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing. There's different definitions of what good looks like. In a lot of ways, it's a good thing that we live in a society in Canada where it's generally acceptable to practice whatever faith you want, or to have no faith. That means that I get to make a decision about my life. It also means that one way or another, I will make a decision. To choose to not follow a religion is also an act of faith. No one can be entirely non-religious. One way or another, we have to believe something. And I'm not convinced that being non-religious or spiritual is necessarily better than being religious. I see a lot of overlap. As much as people might think that religious people are judgy, I was a living, breathing example that you could be a spiritual person, but still coexist in a religion. For some reason, this church hadn't fired me and this seminary even accepted me as a student. And if I can get over the fact that maybe being religious isn't cool, then it's just one of many ways to live. I searched so hard for the good life. For me, it came through travel, then blogging, and entrepreneurship. And as much as I seemed courageous on the outside, I was desperate for the good life. I had formulated an idea of what that should look like. For me, it was living out of a suitcase, traveling often, being surrounded by nature and beautiful destinations, and working from my laptop making content. I think others search just as hard for the good life in other ways, climbing the corporate ladder, having the perfect family, or attaining that elusive six-pack. When my younger self left Christianity, Clearly, I threw out the baby with the bathwater, plus the tub, the tap, the shower curtain, the tiles, the whole bathroom. But now that I was inside a church and inside seminary, I could see that, yeah, the bathwater can be dirty. But there might be a baby here? But this was just the beginning. Little did I know going to seminary would unravel even more layers of this Christianity thing. Recording, uh, this is uh, episode three, seven minutes, ready? One, two, three, and you clap. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is so weak. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to seven minutes of unpolished excellence at the end of this episode, the third episode of Heavily Minded, Earthly Good. I'm here with Dr. James Tyler Robertson. And I'm here with Anita Wingley. Oh, that was pretty good. I like us doing this. We're getting a, we're getting morning show vibes. All right, the timer has started. We now have seven minutes, listener. Uh, Anita, you told me some time ago a story about a, a concerned pastoral neighborly walk you had, and I think it's... Uh, especially fitting for this episode. So I was wondering if you could take myself and the listeners through that and we'll, we'll go from there. 
Yeah, during the pandemic, I discovered that one of my neighbors actually went to catch the fire many years ago. And I told her that I was going to seminary. We would go on lunchtime walks and I'd tell her about the papers I'm writing. And one day she got really concerned and she told me that when she was a youngster, people used to call seminary cemetery because it was the place where your faith went to go die. I had never heard of this before and it made me a bit nervous because I was already in over my head and thinking, what have I gotten myself into? That is... <laughs> uh, one, we'll address the term youngster, because that, that's that's what leads me to believe that this is a true story. I don't think you would... She's not that old. Yeah, but I don't think Sorry, you would ever neighbor. be like, I'll put the word youngster in this made-up fictional character. But you know what? That is definitely not the first time I've ever heard that. I have heard that frequently, both through my own graduate and doctoral studies, and of course now being a cemetery professor myself. You hear what I did there? <laughs> yes. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, I think this this gets at what what it is you've been looking at in this in this third episode, and actually uh, for the first two episodes. But now that you're sort of talking, introducing us all to your time in seminary, so you've been at Catch the Fire. Now you're getting into seminary, and, and you're going to be unpacking that in this and, and future episodes. I think what you're you're seeing is a little bit of another one of those examples of someone who is very concerned about what an open mind, challenging ideas, critiquing the church can. Uh, due to a person who is otherwise a faithful Christian. And this always sort of strikes me as so, not funny, but whenever somebody has sort of expressed that to me, that idea of seminary versus cemetery, uh, I like to retort, absolutely. Seminary is the place you should go to have uh, the faith that you had going in die. If you leave seminary after like three, four, eight years, hopefully it shouldn't take you that long, and you think the same way, then you probably weren't paying attention or myself as a professor or any of my colleagues in this field ha have failed because part of this, part of what makes us beautiful is our ability to challenge and help you to think and see things in new and exciting ways. And sometimes that means older thinking might have to die. <laughs> well, I don't know how convincing that would be to prospective students, yeah. but Personally, I really enjoy the fact that parts of my belief system have died. I've actually enjoyed being surrounded by peers who like to sit around and with professors who've spent years looking at these really nitty gritty questions because a lot of these questions bug everyone, right? We all want to know, like, why do bad things happen? What does really God think about sin? And, and we tend to just push these under the rug, but I've found it really valuable to sit in the questions and to get all these perspectives. And, you know, maybe it's a particular personality type, but I find it fun. Well, yeah, and good for you. And I, I'm hoping a lot of other people do as well. So maybe instead of the word die, because that has a morbidity to it, although let's be honest, if we're Christians, I mean, we we will experience bodily death, but I believe it's G.K. Chesterton. Never forget, we follow a God who knows his way out of the grave. But in the meantime, if that word is a bit too dramatic, I, I like to tell my students at the beginning of any of the history classes, um, it also gives you permission to jettison beliefs that you're like, oh, that idea, of, remember Dr. Franklin speaking uh, in a couple episodes before, that idea is only 50, 60 years old. I was under the impression that this is what Jesus himself said. So it actually sets you free to maybe drop some stuff that, weren't, that wasn't working for you or was causing you questions or whatnot. And in so doing, hopefully encountering other believers, both uh, present day and that have come before us, 
that open us up to whole new understandings, wisdom, and experience that can actually enrich and deepen our faith. So again, where I'm sort of being tongue-in-cheek about the whole idea of your faith dying, what I really am trying to say is like, ah, ah, let's remember what Jesus said, is that for something, for a seed to grow, it has to first die and go to the ground. And so that's where we're actually starting to see the growth. But in those early days, yeah, those walks can be a little bit scary. So I'm sympathetic to people that worry about that. This was a great episode, and I'm just going to keep on rolling through it. And I definitely loved your interactions with Dr. Wilkins Laflamme because uh, she's she's not only a colleague but a friend of mine, and her insights into uh, into Christianity in Canada in, in this uh, century are profoundly valuable. Was there anything about your interview with her that stuck out? Yeah, I really appreciated her because she wasn't trying to be pro-Christian or pro-religion. She wanted to study it from from an objective perspective. And what I found interesting was that she could name off a lot of good things that religious people gave to society. Religious people, like, and this isn't just Christians, this was um, Muslim people and Sikhs and other faiths, they tended to be more involved in their communities. They tended to give more. And this is a perspective that uh, in our society today, we don't really acknowledge. And She also mentioned how when a society is very anti-religion, it creates this huge blind spot so that instead of looking to religious leaders, we only look to university leaders, professors, you know, the experts that we see are often in academic institutions. But she's like, religious leaders have always had good things to offer society across history. And if we don't pay attention to that at all, because we think you know, religion is outdated, we're missing something. And that blind spot is going to come up again in a society and hit us in the face. And there are times in our own society where it hits us in the face. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, I can speak very candidly this. You you rarely want academics leading anything. So in this last 30 seconds of The Unpolished, we want to leave a couple questions for people to sort of dissect and, and kick around. Because again, with Dr. Wilkins Laflamme, She's not pro-church. She's not anti-church. She's she's offering us a very, very clear idea. So maybe in your groups now, sort of discuss, a lot of us are very aware of this term secularization or post-Christendom, excuse me. And, and what are some of the things about, maybe some of the bad things about the Christian church that you actually think, maybe this does need to go in, for, in order for us to go forward? And what are some good things about Christianity? Like, ooh, we don't want to get rid of that uh, going forward or else the society will end up in even more trouble. Oh, I didn't set a timer. We are now at seven minutes and seven seconds. So that's it. I had three Wait, more I questions. Wait, I have one more question. Can nope. I throw this to you guys? Oh my goodness. What, it's not even point of having okay. the seven minutes then. When it comes to spirituality, are there things that, are there aspects of spirituality that you really relate with that you felt like, oh, I can't be religious because, you know, that's a spiritual belief. Just look at that overlap between like, what does our world believe is progressive? What is spiritual? What is religious? And and give yourself some permission to perhaps have overlap. All right. Well, I guess that was pretty good. I guess that was worth extending. All right. Well, this has been apparently almost eight minutes of unpolished, post-heavenly-minded, earthly good or during whatever. All right. Good enough. <laughs> See Talk you in the next one. All right. Bye. Heavenly-minded, earthly good is a production of Tyndale University. Visit our website for more information.